this evening as uh, we're all thinking about going back to our homes and our workplaces and places of study tomorrow, I wanted to speak about something that has directly to do with being in life and um, being able to speak and act in life in ways that cause harmony. And so tonight I'd like to speak about inner beauty, inner beauty, and has, how it relates to our speech and our behavior. What's become more noticeable to me as I grow older is that can't do anything about the body, <laughs> right? Uh, it does what it does, and um, we do the best we can with it. We exercise, we um, keep it clean uh, inside and outside, and we do uh, the things that keep us in balance uh, in life. And so we, we bear with it, and also there are aches and pains that come. Sometimes it's really hard to be with those, and so we do our practice of meditation. Sometimes that alleviates a lot, sometimes not. The area which I feel we can uh, cultivate and develop most is our inner beauty or our inner strength, as men would probably like to hear that word more. (laughs) And it's the beauty of having uh, a reliability about our speech and behavior so we don't harm others and we don't harm our own karmic stream as well. So by inner beauty, I mean the qualities of wisdom and compassion in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, We've talked about that a lot in the Dharma talks and uh, between us in the little groups and individually. And when we know much more confidently when something is going to cause disharmony in our community or among our loved ones, and we know before it, it, we can even act it out or speak it out, we know to refrain from doing that. We understand also what leads to harmony, what leads to happiness, and we put uh, our intention there, and we even go forth to develop that. So these two basic things are, is the co- are the causes and conditions of this radiant, inner beauty, this radiant inner wealth. And this is what we can pay a lot of attention to when we go home into our lives. So inner beauty is also inner strength. And it comes from our intentions, our resolves, and putting really conscious energy to develop these strengths and also to know when to relinquish these um, in these kind of habitual tendencies that we know will cause harm. The word for living in harmony through our speech and actions is sila. That's the word in Pali, S-I-L-A. There's also a definition of it as virtuous conduct, virtuous speech. It's interesting when I look this up um, in the text, I think this area that I'm just going to speak about comes from the Abhidhamma. One of the characteristics of sila is harmonizing. It was interesting to read that word because I know that sila leads to harmony, but it's actually this verb of harmonizing. Living in harmony with one's highest inner values So that's kind of interesting to me, like uh, sometimes I uh, think about what are my inner values, but most of the time I just kind of live along my life and I have a sense of what my inner, my deep inner or my high inner values are, but sometimes it's good to ponder on it. There are some people, I bring the subject up and there's hasn't ever been a reflection on what are my inner values anyway. 
So a time like this in retreat and before going home, you might begin to take a little time to reflect on that for yourselves. What are your highest inner values? And are you living in harmony with those inner values? And then another uh, area of that harmonizing is, are we in harmony with the highest values of our community, the community that we live in, the people that we care about, the people that care for us? Because when we're doing both of these things, living in harmony with our own inner values, highest values, living in harmony with the values of the community that we connect with, uh, near and far, this leads to a very deep sense of well-being. And this is so important in our lives as meditators, as dhamma-farers, that we really want to have this sense of deep inner well-being. Because when we do have this sense, it's much easier to sit on the cushion and not have those default settings come up so often, you know, that lead to disharmony within ourselves because we're not happy with ourselves or among others. You know, we know that we may speak too fast or act too fast and uh, it becomes difficult for ourselves and those around us. So our sense of well-being is a, a good reason to take a look at this in our lives for ourselves, to reflect on this. Because it said this, this uh, sila, this living in harmony with one's deepest inner values and the values of the community is said to be the cornerstone upon which the Eightfold Noble Path is built upon. Uh, living in harmony in terms of our speech and our behavior relates to and uh, brings about a deep inner quiet within ourselves, a deep settling within ourselves, which also leads to the possibility of developing wisdom. So it's said that this kind of harmonizing conduct composes the mind. That was one of the causes uh, and conditions for a deep composing of the mind and heart. And this has far-reaching consequences because a still mind, a quiet mind, is possible, from there it's possible to see how things really are. You know, the kind of very simple definition of Dhamma, to see things as they really are, to see the truth of life. In the Samyutta Nikaya, a bhikkhu, a monk, approached the Buddha and said to the Buddha, let the Blessed One teach me the Dhamma in brief. And the Buddha answered, well then, bhikkhu, cultivate the very starting point of wholesome states. And what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. Then when your virtue is well purified and your view, your meaning to say right view, is straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should then develop the four establishments of mindfulness. So at various places in the text where the Buddha speaks like this, there is a, a kind of understanding that, a tacit understanding that when the Buddha would go to a community, was invited to a community to speak, and he, he was uh, new to that community, and the community was new to the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha would start out with the, with the teachings of sila, the teachings of living in harmony with one another and with your own highest standards, inner standards. And then after that, the Buddha would teach uh, concentration, you know, being able to calm the mind, to tranquilize the mind, to concentrate the mind. And then after that was established, the Buddha would teach ways to understand wisdom from those two bases. One would lead to another. 
So virtuous conduct is a very important baseline in the Buddha's teaching, and it actually needs a lot more airtime than what we usually give it. So going, going home, coming into retreat, you know, we, we chanted the five precepts every single morning. So we were uh, kind of taking this in every morning to remind ourselves, be careful of our speech and behavior. Of course, keeping silence really helps that. <laughs> because, uh, you know, we're not speaking at all, except when absolutely necessary. And then um, we're, we're very generous with one another. You know, the, the little things that we do for one another here, like those of us, you who have your yogi jobs, and you do them, uh, you know, with a great deal of love and responsibility and selflessness, that's really felt. You know, the ones who are our wonderful cooks who are in the kitchen that are offering us this wonderful food and, and a dessert every day. Wow, you, you never get that in other places. It's only in Perth that I realize that. Even in Italy, you don't get that every, every day. Where it's, you know, food is like primo there, but uh, we have a different kind of primo here, and it's really good. But my stomach is kind of showing <laughs> right now. So, um, but anyway, that will uh, even out later on. So, I think this this place of sila is so important for us. And a lot of people ask about, well, my family doesn't practice and meditation, and what then? You know, what uh, don't we sometimes? Yogis like us don't feel really completely complete and fulfilled when the rest of our family doesn't practice. But what I see is that when they're when they're practicing sila, you know, being careful about speech and behavior, watching I'll go through all the five precepts, but watching the truthfulness, watching behavior that doesn't harm, this is really important. I mean, I think it's possible to live with somebody who has wonderful speech and behavior and doesn't know anything about the Dharma at all, you know, but kind of has a naturalness about it, about being mindful. I have lots of friends like that. Not in the Dharma, but their paramis, you know, their beautiful qualities of mind are just really exceptional, or maybe not that exceptional, but they're pretty good, and they're inspiration to me. And also their, their just ability to be very careful with their speech and their behavior is um, something, you know, for myself to aim for, too. <clears throat> you know, we're all pretty good at it, and I, I'm not saying that there are radical places where I kind of am not following the precepts. There, I'm pretty good at it, but there's always places where we can refine and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. So when we're in the Dhamma, we really look at a more refined sensitivity to not harming. We really look um, into the future more. But like I have children and grandchildren, and I'm really careful to hand down behavior and um, uh, be able to be an inspiration to those who are younger in my family so that they can also carry that forth in their lives. So at a time like this when we're in retreat and we see all the inner attitudes coming up, you know, those default settings, I suppose each one of you in your own ways has um, kind of a reflection of, wow, I can really clean up my act one of those areas. And so this is a time to reflect on that and make an intention, perhaps, to carry uh, a resolve home with you about looking over the precepts and seeing where can I really have a refinement, even if I know I'm following them now, where could I have a refinement in those five areas? One of them may stand out more than another. Refraining from harming protects us from harming our own hearts and minds. 
from our own uh, karmic stream. So I'd like to fill these precepts out a little bit and um, see where we can practice these areas of non-harming and be maybe more awake in them as we do our practice. For one thing, before I forget, it would be really good if you felt like it um, to take these precepts every day. To just, it's first thing you wake up in the morning or um, at night, whenever is conducive for you, to remind yourselves of these precepts of refraining from harming any living being in any way and just see what it does in your life. Uh, we took them every morning in Pali, but you might want to take them in English or just in general. You know, make a resolve to do the best you can today to refrain from harming any living being in speech or behavior. Simple as that. And see just how it improves your own inner life to do that. So uh, this gives us an opportunity when we take this practice as a mindfulness practice to keep a close watch on what is going on within us. You know the the thing about um, watching our attitudes? Well, this is a way to watch it through our daily life. What attitudes are there where we might um, say something or do something that is not so nice for others or for ourselves? And how our emotions, speech, and actions um, are uh, affecting those around us. A lot of times that's what we see first. Something comes out and um, we notice that, oh, maybe inadvertently we didn't mean to, but we weren't so careful. Uh, We just thought to just let it out of our our minds and comes through our speech and then we see how it affects someone. You know, in the in the past we might say if we hurt someone and we, we didn't intend to, we might say, I didn't intend to do that. And then all of a sudden we've absolved ourselves. There's a whole thing going on now in the West is that's not enough. It's not enough just to say, I didn't intend that and then all of a sudden that everything drops and now the other person just has to deal with it. Now there is this whole understanding about not only what's your intention, but the probable impact it might be on another person. So it's watching intention and watching impact as well. Intention and that impact cannot be separated anymore. So um, somebody would say, well, you know, I didn't have any intention to do that, so it's up to you how you take it. It's kind of, um, I don't know, it's just not very nice to do that. And um, now the question comes up, well, didn't you have any thought in your mind how that would impact me? How that would impact people you work with? So we really have to think ahead and not just think that, well, you know, I usually say this and it's fine, so I can say it now. But what needs to come with it is the understanding of how it might impact another. So an intention and impact need to go together in our lives to be really complete about this kind of sensitivity. So it also means developing that sensitivity to know how our actions um, kind of impact upon another. And at the same time, or even beforehand, to know, is this what I'm going to say? Is this going to be accompanied by greed, hatred, or delusion? Really make make a practice of looking at that. My mother, who's Asian, Filipina, she would say in in her language to me when I was growing up, before you say anything, roll it around your tongue a hundred times. It's kind of a beautiful way to say that in Filipino, in her dialect. And 
So I, I kind of paid attention to that. It's, it's kind of why I speak slowly. <laughs> it, English isn't my first language anyway, but um, just to be able to think about what am I going to say about this? And of course, you know, things come out just willy-nilly too sometimes. So in this way, when we're looking inside to see what's going to accompany this speech or action, where is it, where is it coming from, what is it motivated by, um, and to really look at what is our mind like when we're going to do this, what's the attitude of the mind. We might have a clear motivation, but maybe we're a little hot-tempered then, and that might not be a, the best time. So we begin to make more conscious choices to cultivate the good, interact only when we know for sure that there is goodness in the heart and mind. So we use the precepts as trainings in awareness and also in renunciation, because the way that the precepts are articulated is as a renunciation. I undertake the training to refrain from, and then it goes to all the five different uh, ways to refrain from harming through action, through speech, etc. So they're trainings in awareness and also in renunciation. They're not commandments. It doesn't say, don't do this, or, you know, you must do it this way. It, it's so wonderful that we, can, we do the best we can in, according to how much we understand and where, how much renunciation, how much clarity we have. And we actually, of course, learn by our mistakes, learn by places where we see, ooh, that hurt. Actually, when I said that, it not only hurt that other person, but I could see that it, it hurt me to actually say it. So <clears throat> there is this harmony that we develop uh, about being um, able to rely on ourselves. And uh, it's, a, it's a very deep sense of well-being when we can rely on ourselves out of habit because we're speaking uh, clearly, we're speaking honestly, tenderly. So I want to give some examples uh, about these five precepts. And I can't cover all the ground of it, but you probably know a lot yourselves, you know, from your own experience. So in these examples, I just want to um, give some suggestions of how we might take these precepts even further than they are um, given as, as trainings. So the first one is we undertake the training to refrain from taking the life of or harming any being. And so um, we do this by becoming more conscious of our, when we say harming or taking the life of, being more conscious of not only uh, you know our actions but also of our words because we can, we can harm through our words. This comes in the area of right speech, too. But, you know, there's a Native American Indian saying, I, I think they really believe it, that you can kill a tree by shouting at it continuously. You know, it, I, I guess by learning, I've been learning a lot about trees, and they have very delicate communication systems, and they take in also communication from their surroundings. Um, it's really interesting when you get into it more. Like when, I'll just give you one example. Like um, the, in Africa, there could be giraffe that are eating from a certain tree, and that tree will send signals to other trees to send off a scent so it repels the giraffe. So there's very interesting communication that they take in and also that they can take out, give out. So it, it's really important to be sensitive in, in our ways uh, in life. So harming doesn't mean just refraining from killing if you take it further. 
It's uh, seeing what we say or do that causes someone to be hurt. Like you could kill someone's spirit by saying or doing something. You could you could actually kill their spirit, meaning to say you know they just then don't believe in themselves. And people have grown up this way. So it brings more connection to us, you know, to have a real deep connection with life and knowing that all of life wants to live. Now here in Australia, having I've. I know that there are snakes here and, you know, all kinds of creatures here we have to be careful about. In Hawaii, luckily we don't have snakes, but we have cockroaches that are huge. Do, do you have those here? Yeah. Okay, they're, they're, they can be like huge, like that. And you, um, you just find them, it's just looking at them that gives you the heebie-jeebies, you know. But because in our home we don't kill anything, or we, you know, we try not to. Sometimes inadvertently it happens. But even these huge cockroaches, you know, like I, the way I would handle them is I would um, throw a towel over it, and then I would get that towel really wrapped up so it wouldn't get away, and then I would take that towel and throw it outside. Probably, as you, if you walked by my door, you might have seen a few towels because I, <laughs> I did try to gather some spiders and put them outside and, you know, just throw the towel out and, and the towel would unravel and maybe the spider would go away. But with the cockroaches, I mean, this is how careful we are at home, is um, I get these cockroaches and, and I take the towel and I go on the deck and I just throw it as far as I could. And so um, the people who work on the land know that, oh, that that's Kamala's towel, let's put it in the wash because she threw a bug away or something. But they would come back and we were sure that the same cockroach was coming back <laughs> over and over again. So uh, my friend, Sister Viranyani, she said, she was living up in one of the places there and she um, said, I- I'm sure that cockroach keeps coming back, I'm going to put nail polish on that cockroach. <laughs> so she asked for some and, uh, well, what we did was we would cover the cockroach in the towel, and then I thought, I'm going to take this one far away. So I would take it a mile up the hill and, and let the cockroach there go there. And the cockroach, we thought, it's the same cockroach. So then when we did the nail polish thing, it was. Once <laughs> the cockroach came all the way back, it knew its home, you know. Uh, that's just an example of how careful we are. And then we, we kind of just gave up. But there there were times that, you know, I gathered the cockroach, put them in a great big bin, and I asked the, the guy who's kind of a caretaker on the land to take them to the dump, which is like 10 miles away. So, yeah being careful that we have that loving connection with all of life, even the creepy crawly ones. So what, what else can you do? You know, you, you can carry out by protecting life. Just the example I gave you. Not just not killing, but, you know, protecting it. And when, I, when we delivered them to the dump, I just felt like this is probably a heaven realm for them. <laughs> they were probably really happy. Up at the top of the hill, there's nothing there. <laughs> so this, that's um, you know, undertaking the training to refrain from intentionally taking the life of or harming another being. And the second one is undertaking the training to refrain from taking what is not offered to us. So this training fosters a sense of being content, if you can really do that. I mean, I'm sure there's no one here that would intentionally steal something. Um, And, you know, sometimes we might take something that we're not sure of, but uh, even in retreat centers, there are things that can stay there for a long, long time because people just don't touch it. 
you know, unless we make sure who does this belong to, and um, we put a lot of things in the lost and found. One time I thought that I just completely lost my shoes, you know, at, at IMS. I didn't know where my, kind of my favorite slip-on, slip-off shoes were, and I thought, went home and I thought, they're not here, I'd been to a few other places. And about six or seven years later, I honestly, I found them in the shoe rack. They were there, and I thought, they were there all the time, and I didn't see them. You know, I kind of looked, didn't see them. But people don't take them, you know, unless they go to what we call the, the Dharma Salvation Army closet. So um, when people take that, that precept, they're really, really taking that precept there. And so when we, when we take a precept really seriously like that, what we're doing is we're also fostering a sense of contentment with what we already have. So we say, okay, it's all right. I don't need to take that one thing that's there. Or um, like at certain centers, we won't take anything unless we know it's offered. So it's a really deep sense of like protecting what belongs to others. Also, um, you can do the opposite of that, of practicing generosity. It furthers... Uh, the practice of generosity then when we when we take that precept even further than that so the third one has to do with undertaking the training to refrain from using our sexual energy to um, that will cause harm in any way directly you know physically or indirectly emotionally so we try to be very careful of that because uh, sexual energy is very powerful energy, and uh, it's just uh, something to really be careful around because we can be heedless around there because it's so powerful, and it's it's hard to know where we're really coming from sometimes. So being very careful about that because it hurts emotionally uh, others in retreat. This precept means we're celibate during retreat. So that really helps us uh, to kind of watch that energy that's so powerful. We use it, we use that energy to be more aware of what's going on rather than dissipating it that way. So the fourth one is undertaking the training to refrain from saying what is not true. Um, that's in this in this particular in this precept. It's to refraining from saying what is not true, and there are other guidelines about right speech which kind of fill it out more. And I'll fill it out more a little here too. But um, this one about refraining from saying what is not true is a really interesting one. When I learned about its some of its background, what I learned is that um, long, long, long ago, world cycles ago, they say, when the Bodhisattva became the Buddha of our time, the Gotama Buddha, uh, made a resolve to become a Buddha. Then he resolved to take, to develop all of these paramis. And to, uh, this, this one about all the precepts had to keep all the precepts. Now, this I heard from uh, some of our monastic teachers, so, but I never read it myself, so I'm just taking what they've said. Is that during all these lifetimes, the Buddha, the, to be the Bodhisattva, could break or would break uh, the various different precepts, you know, of killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and um, taking substances that would cause the mind to be unclear, but still be able to keep developing the paramis, to keep developing strength in all of the various different ways, and these particular strengths of uh, refraining from doing harm with the four precepts that I just mentioned. But if the bodhisattva, or the Buddha-to-be, broke the precept of telling an untruth, he would automatically break his um, 
you know, his kind of aspiration to be a Buddha because you have to be completely truthful. And I learned that because when I was in my first uh, long retreat here, I might have told you this story at the beginning. Sometimes I forget where I am (laughs) and um, where I told the stories. But when I was um, training with Upandita and um, people in the group were giving their report and saying how well their practice was going and it was almost, it was kind of unbelievable, you know, because it was the first day or two and then we were reporting in little groups to Sayadawji and um, that evening he gave a Dharma talk and he said that I want you to be completely truthful when you report to me because first of all how can I help you he was talking about the precepts then how can I help you if you're not truthful and you don't say exactly what's going on and he said and then also how can you experience the truth if you can't stand on the truth with your speech and whoa that really got to me and I thought I really have to be not only truthful but precise in what I report, how I report. And so um, he asked everybody to uh, come to his kuti uh, and to let him know that they were untruthful, that they weren't precisely true about what they were saying about their practice. And I really examined, I thought, did I say anything that was kind of off or that was kind of like insinuating something and it wasn't true and I thought I really didn't say very much and I just said something about restlessness and sleepiness and um, so I felt clear and I didn't join the line (laughs) at his door but people lined up to say that this is what they did and he said it would be better for you because you didn't say the truth to you know somebody like him that you should ask for forgiveness for their sake so that's what they did so that really was from that time on I was actually timing like I would say this is how long I sit I sat today and this is how how long I walked and there would even be things like so many hours and 23 minutes you know, I really wanted to see the truth. So I was so precise about saying exactly what happened. So it's really important, that part of um, the precepts, and uh, it brings more inner harmony, more clarity to, to say the truth. Um, to say it also, when we fill that out a little more, say it in a loving tone, and really keeping the intention in mind of what the communication is so we don't chatter away, have useless speech. It's interesting that useless speech in Pali is this really cute word. It's sampapalapawada. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like blah, 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 right? (laughs) Useless speech. So we might also consider whether it's best to speak not at all. You know, just to leave out what we're going to say. And it it gives us a lot of rest. You know, is this this, uh, useful to say this? Is it useful? Is it kind? Is it truthful? Those are three kind of guidelines to go by. There's a saying about that. um, Will saying what I'm going to say uh, in will that improve upon silence? (laughs) Because oftentimes it's just nice to not say very much at all. So the last one is uh, we undertake the training to refrain from taking any substance that causes the mind to be unclear when we're practicing. And this has to do, even in the time of the Buddha, there were kind of recreational drugs and things that you would drink, you know, that would just kind of make the mind unclear, can't make good decisions, etc. Now this isn't talking about medicines, 
some t- medicines, things that we have to take to keep us balanced in life. Uh, this is really important to keep taking. So um, for all of us, this middle path of what is what causes the mind to be unclear, what causes the mind to be clear, to know what that is for us, and to be refining it in our practice. Because sometimes when I'm in practice, um, I, I will be taking a certain amount of caffeine, and then I realize I just can't do that, you know, because the mind goes a little bit wild even with a cup of green tea. So I have to stop doing that because something like that makes the mind unclear. Or even having chocolates, you know, just people give away things a lot. And even having one little chocolate can go, whoo, the mind is not clear. (coughs) So being very sensitive about what it is for us uh, during these times when we're sensitive, very sensitive. So I'd like to talk about the underpinnings of sila that are really important to know. Um, These, what are called inner guardians. They're called actually the two guardians of the world. And this is a shining light of inner beauty, these two guardians of the world. They're the inner guardians uh, of sila. And they really help our sila to really shine in the world. They're not outer guardians or devas, uh, celestial beings, but they're understandings inside that lead us to not harming and lead us to living in harmony. So in the ancient language of Pali, uh, these are called hiri. Some of you are taking notes, so you don't have to memorize this, but some of you are interested. Hiri is one of the inner uh, guardians, H-I-R-I and Otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A. And many fine translators like to use these terms in Pali rather than try to define them in English because they mean so much more in Pali and they just have kind of like a shallow meaning in English. But I'll, I'll let you know what they are translated in in English. So hiri is translated as moral shame. That's why it's not good to translate it in English. It just feels like an awful, it doesn't feel like an inner guardian when you say moral shame because it has not a very good connotation in our English language. But in the Dhamma, the definition is not associated with kind of a self-aversion, but it has an internal reference an inner sense that our words or behavior don't feel right. So this hiri, this moral shame, is a healthy form of sensitivity. And it is a personal sense of conscience. It has to do with you know, our inner sense of conscience. It's an intuitive sense that before we do something, we would say, oh, this is going to be hurtful to myself. Like, even if we're going to say something, we know that we're going to regret it. We know that we're going to have remorse for it. And we know that it's going to hurt our karmic stream to say those kinds of things. So we shrink away, and we just don't go there. So it's a a feeling of shrinking away from something that's going to be harmful to our karma, to our karma creation. And so it's an intuitive sense, this is hurtful. It's about having respect for oneself. So remember I talked about a lot of the retreat was about understanding not-self, anatta, anicca, and all of that, the kind of absolute levels of reality and deeply understanding dukkha. And so, you, you know, we say, well, what about the self? What about the self? Well, the Buddha talked a lot about the self on this relative level. This is what this whole understanding of Hiriyotapa and the whole understanding of sila and also generosity is all about. And so um, it's huge. It's, it's a big area of guidance 
that the Buddha gave. So this hiri is about having respect for oneself, preserving the honorable standards that we feel comfortable because we know that with these standards we will have a lessening of remorse, a lessening of regret, and maybe no remorse, maybe no regret. So it's respect for one's own integrity, it's respect for one's own dignity, a deep care for our long-term well-being, our long-term welfare. And I just want to say here that, of course, we're human. We make mistakes in life. And remorse is good, you know, to reflect back and see, oh, I, I need to look at that. I need to be more careful around this area. And I don't want us to go away thinking that, you know, there are ways that we've hurt ourselves, there are ways that we've hurt others, and we're a bad person. This is why the Buddha gave the, the precepts in the way of training, so we know that we're human. We're going to make these mistakes, and we can reflect back and say, okay, that's the past. The past is dead and gone. The future is yet to come. But in this moment, I can make a good future for myself. And in that future, I can look back and say, for the most part, I could see that my past has been good because of the, um, the intentions and the actions and the speech I've done in every present moment, after I've learned my lessons in life. And we're constantly learning them. So in the text, it gives a simile of what Hiri actually feels like. It's like uh, seeing an iron rod. This is in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. It's like seeing an, uh, an iron rod smeared with excrement on one side. And uh, we're about to grab it. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a seeing of the excrement on that side. And we, say, we shrink back and we say, mm-mm, I'm not going to grab this rod. And it's a shrinking away in disgust, a disgust for, you know, kind of going towards what may hurt our own integrity, what may hurt our own conscience. So I'll give you an example of that. One time when I was practicing in Burma in the forest monastery there, um, I had just come away from having a difficult time with a very good friend of mine. And you know how friends are. It's just there's squabbles that you have. And I came away having these very bad feelings going into retreat, having these very bad feelings about this person, what I said, what she said, and what I could say. And I was spending a good amount of my time figuring out what am I going to say when I go back to make myself right, you know. And of course, even though I knew that's not the way to go, Kamala. But by habit, things can go in that direction over and over again. So this would come out, this thinking would come out a lot in my, in my walking meditation. So I went to report it to uh, the teacher, and that it would come up over and over again. And then I, I said, then a fear of disgust would come. You know, after the, the thinking would come about it, then there would be a disgust about it. And I actually, at that point, there had never been um, a talk at that retreat. It was kind of like the beginning of Hiri Otapa, but I remembered this Hiri part. And I said, Seidaoji, could this be Hiri? You know, the, the fact of just not feeling good about where the mind is going and shrinking away from that. Because I would see that it would be going in that direction, and then it was like, mm-mm, don't go there, because you know you're going to go down the rabbit hole again. And he said, that's exactly right, because it would be like um, you're going to, he didn't say this, but later I learned, it would be like you're going out to kind of hold some excrement, and you don't want to do that. So it's kind of disgusting. You have a disgusting feeling about it. So here he is respect for oneself. It's seeing the danger and seeing that she, it's not going to be nice 
if you, if you go there. It's one of the inner guardians and it's a cause for inner beauty because then you don't go there. Mahasi Sayadaw said, Hiri, or shame, is a feeling of disgust towards the hindrances, towards the kilesas. As you try to be mindful, you find there are gaps during which the hindrances pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to your senses, so to speak, you feel a kind of abhorrence or shame. It's a shrinking away. This attitude is called hiri. So the other is otapa. It's a, um, that Pali word is translated in English to mean moral dread or moral fear. And this dread or fear is not a defilement. It's a healthy form of fear of doing something blamable. So this has to do with the sense of social conscience. Social conscience. It's a fear of doing something blamable where the first thing you might think about is, oh, what will the people that I respect think of me? This is quite healthy. You know, I just, um, sometimes, you know, <laughs> I think when I've done something that might not be quite right or I've been sort of disrespectful to a peer of mine or something like that, I would say to myself, oh, what would Upandita think of me now, you know, when I, <laughs> I might have said a bad word or something like that. Um, one of those four-letter words that are still part of my teenage years would come out all of a sudden. And then, you know, I'd go, you know, put the Dharma duct tape on my mouth before it came out. So it's a healthy form of fear of doing something blamable, you know, where what would people I respect think of me then? That our speech or behavior could be harmful to others. That's another thing we have a dread about, we could have a dread about. That what I say or do could be harmful to somebody else. So I'm careful or could hurt someone. So we really try to be careful there. It's a wise sense of knowing and respecting the communal standards for harmony. So it's to thinking, it's really thinking about communal standards, the consensual relational standards that we have. Remembering that a community is as fragile as one person's unconscious, unaware, unwholesome speech or unwholesome behavior. So what we might fear is that members of the community, especially those we respect and love, who trust us would lose their respect and their trust for us. Or, you know, we might even fear that we, we'd be punished. I mean, like, in, that's why laws are made like that, is to put up moral fear, moral dread sometimes. All the time, actually. So this is a healthy fear. It's like seeing a burning hot iron rod and when we're about to grab it, we pull ourselves away from it because we say, this is not good, this is hurtful. So it's dreading the consequences of also being shunned uh, or punishment or not being respected ourselves. So Hiri and Otapa is supported by mindful awareness because we're mindfully attentive to our inner world and to the habit patterns we might have. And that awareness activates this refraining from acting out through speech and behavior and um, letting wisdom come to the foreground and, and do what it does. Wisdom is refraining. And wisdom is also refraining from acting in a way that causes disharmony. And it's also acting in ways that cause harmony. There's a saying that you can do something or say something in an instant that can give you a heartache for a lifetime. Right? Yeah. So we've all, uh, we all have this in our lives. We're not... Um, 
immune from this, we're all human. And of course, there's always that other side, you know, if we've done these things, can we have forgiveness for ourselves? Can we forgive others? And can we understand that it's part of the human realm that we make mistakes? And um, can we forgive one another? That this is part of our uh, communal values too, forgiving ourselves, forgiving one another. So this Hiri Otapa is the underpinnings of sila, a beautiful form of renunciation when we refrain from acting out in speech and behavior that causes harm. It's the cultivation of compassion as well. And when we we can let go before it happens, we can see this will cause harm. And what's a precursor to that? The precursor to that is being aware. So sila is this beautiful protection um, that we need in our lives. And it's a beautiful gift that we give to others. When we carry this sila, then people around us trust us. They feel safe around us. They feel that inner sense of well-being around us. And if you carry the sila in yourself, then you also feel that sense of well-being in yourself. We have a sense of trusting ourselves at really deep levels. Even if we see what's going through the mind, of course, that's what we do the mindful practice for, to see what's going on in the mind so that we're more careful about speech and behavior. Even though it comes in the mind, that's one kind of karma, but acting it out, it <coughs> makes that karma really weighty, more serious. So the benefits of virtue, the Buddha said that virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim and non-remorse as its benefit. So this is a really <coughs> basic uh, foundation. It's also said in the text that the benefits of virtue are one who is virtuous comes into a large fortune. (laughs) And I might say that's liberation because it is the foundation of liberating wisdom. And one who is virtuous, that person's fair name is spread. One who is virtuous enters an assembly without fear. One who is virtuous dies unconfused. One who is virtuous at the breakup of the body reappears in a happy destiny. So the uh, some of the final words from Mahasi Sayadaw, our grandfather teacher, says you should So you should protect your morality with great care, just as you would protect your very life. I just feel so touched that this is just coming from, you know, generations of our teachers. You should not be negligent about your behavior, thinking you can correct it later. You might die at any time and be immediately reborn in the lower realms if your morality is deficient. Morality is especially important for those who are practicing meditation. They should even honor and respect it more than their lives and keep it fully purified. If you do this, you will have a clear conscience every time you reflect upon your morality during your meditation practice. You will experience joy and delight, tranquility, happiness, and peace. By observing the physical and mental processes every time they arise, you will see things as they really are and gain further knowledge. And the Buddha said that at the time of death, quoting the Buddha here, just as oil rises to the top of a pot submerged in water, so too your virtue, your goodness, your faith, your generosity will rise to the top. So let's sit for a 
the words to solve. So as we go home into our lives, into our work, and our communities, may we carry this practice of mindfulness, of awareness about our speech and our behavior, and keep the sila, the deep understanding of sila with us, day by day, moment by moment, and may it lead to the highest happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.